Picture a deer. Now picture a forest. There's a fire in this forest. The deer dies. Now remember that mainstream science says this has been going on for millions of years. If this were true, why would God allow such a thing? What benefit could there possibly be for so much death and suffering? Surely there could be a better way for the deer and all of its ancestors to die, right? Wouldn't this make God immoral? Today we are going to discuss these questions with philosopher and theologian Dr. Bethany Solorzor. How are you doing today, Dr. Bethany? Uh, I'm I'm great, thank you. Uh, it's a lovely day. It's uh, cloudy as you would expect here in Scotland, uh, and relatively cold, but uh, it's warm <laughs> inside, so all is well. There you go. Awesome. All right. So, for people that are not aware of your work and all you've done on the topic, would you mind giving us a little bit about your background and uh, your you know your how you come to this topic? Yeah, um, I I uh, didn't start off really in in philosophy. I'm I'm a theologian uh, in my training. So my my undergraduate was actually in intercultural studies and theology, sort of looking towards missions. And then as I was coming to the end of my undergraduate, I met a guy named Dennis Lamoureux, who is the chair of science and religion at the University of Alberta. And he convinced me to change over to science and religion. And so, you know, I was uh, full of existential angst, as one is in, in the early 20s, and was thinking about how God allowed evil and why, why this was allowed in the world. And um, when he convinced me to come into science and religion, I started looking at what I could do in the area of sort of suffering and evil in that sense. And in at that point in time, sort of 2007, there weren't really any books on evolution and the problem of animal suffering. And I just thought, oh, this is a really interesting area. It's a problem of evil that hasn't been done to death. Uh, and no sooner do I pick that than four really good books come out sort of the next year. Um, <laughs> But one of them, Christopher Southgate, uh, his book Groaning of Creation came out in 2008. And uh, I read it and sort of thought, wow, this guy has done amazing work. He's basically said everything I want to say better than I could say it. So I, I thought a suitable revenge would be to come study with him. So I ended up doing oh. my PhD with him at the University of Exeter. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a really great background there. Yeah, so you, you, you talked about your background a little bit. Um, let's talk about the, the topic a little bit better here. Um, can you help my under, can you help my audience understand why this is a difficult topic, the, the topic of human suffering, animal suffering, how that's a difficult problem in regards to evolution and God and how that all mixes together? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, if you if you think of God as sort of loving and powerful and um, not wanting evil to exist, it becomes a bit of a, a mystery. Why why is there evil in the world? Um, you would think that if God was powerful, God could eliminate suffering, and if God was good, God would want to eliminate suffering. And so the fact that we suffer seems like something of that is not lining up. And so you have people who say, well, God doesn't really care. Um, or they say evil is not really evil or, you know, that sort of thing. And one of the strongest sort of arguments that Christians have put forward is the idea that uh, the reason things have gone wrong is because people have chosen wrong. So Adam and Eve in the garden have upset the sort of cosmic uh, harmony that God intended and everything mm -hmm. has gone wrong since then. And you could also um, sort of say, you know, through suffering, we, we grow in God. We have, we have the capacity to be shaped by suffering uh, that draws us closer to God. So those are two big answers. So the free will idea that we've chosen wrong and things have gone wrong. And the second is, is sometimes referred to as the sort of 
veil of soul making that we're we're in this valley of the earth where where we can build our souls build our spirits through suffering um the real problem with evolution is that it doesn't seem to work with either of those um mm. evolution happened long before you know humans were were a twinkle in the australopithecines eyes or you know whatever so we have we have violence we have predation going back about 350 million years just at the same point as you're starting to get complex body systems um on on the map of life you have creatures deciding to eat each other rather than make their own energy from sunlight um and and so uh animals have had things like cancer for hundreds of millions of years. So we have good evidence that uh, dinosaurs had uh, deformations, that they had bone cancer uh, and other things. So these don't look like they're the fault of humans who are a relative newcomer to the, to the history of life. So that, that's one of the reasons that, that this becomes difficult is so hundreds of millions of years of um, of creaturely pain and to some extent of suffering for those that have advanced enough sort of cognitive systems to be able to suffer. Um, the other thing is that we, that second idea, the fact that we can grow closer to God through suffering, again, doesn't seem to be a benefit that animals can have. We, they may, we don't know. I don't, I don't know what it's like to be a bat or an aardvark or, or a bird, um, but, <laughs> Uh, from what we can tell, they don't have sort of a conscious relationship with God where they can say, okay, I'm suffering, but I'm going to trust God through this. And that will sort of build my spiritual life in these important ways. So the two strongest arguments uh, Christians have put forward for why God allows evil really don't seem to apply to the animal world. Uh, and that, and that leaves us with a theological problem. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the the whole, you know, Adam and Eve thing. That's kind of how I got interested in this topic. I was listening to a debate between an evolutionist and a young earth creationist. And, you know, typically that's purely a either scientific or like, you know, how to study the Bible kind of topic. But the young earth creationist was like, hey, yeah, this couldn't have happened because this this evolution stuff makes God evil and animal suffering and death. And I was like, oh my goodness, wow, I never thought of it like that. That's a really interesting argument. So um, yeah, no, it'll be good to get you on for these types of questions to see see if uh, how much juice there is to that question. So, and on this topic, you obviously have written a lot about, you know, the different types of questions like that. In your book, Evolution, Animal Suffering and the Problem of Evil, you made a lot of really interesting points. Could you just go through like a just general summary of that book, um, you know, maybe get people interested in it, get people an idea of what you wrote about, and then we can, after that, go into a little bit more detail. Yeah, well, I can, I can try. So, so I really, I wrote the book really for Christians who are wondering about this. So I do, I came across the same thing that people who uh, were talking, interested in talking about animal suffering um, would, would first of all see it as a question, did evolution happen? Uh, and once we had done all the science stuff, and then we had done all the Bible stuff, then they would kind of be like, but doesn't, doesn't this make God evil? And so I really sort of worked this out as an attempt to give Christians a good theological foundation that would uh, allow them to address these issues and, and at least deal with some of the theological issues that arise if, you want, if you're in the place where you want to accept evolution as as the way god created so the book the book really begins with sort of looking at the whole scope of the conversation um quite a bit of the conversation is philosophical and uh there are a few theologians like me who who jump in and so it's really sort of setting out the terrain so that somebody who doesn't know anything about it can come in and and understand what are the main fault lights of debate what are people disagreeing on and how um, and what are their their methods for going about solving it? Is is logic a good way to try and solve it? What part does the Bible play? All those kind of questions. The second, uh, then it moves into much more of a biblical chapter, a chapter looking at the questions of 
does Genesis 2 and 3, that whole fall narrative, um, and I, I sort of stretch it out to, to Genesis 8 and 9 with, with Noah's flood, which I think is quite important to the whole thing. But does it, does it actually tell us about a fall of, of the type that we've come to know? Uh, the idea that when Adam and Eve fell, that that was the moment that lions started looking at lambs going, wow, you look tasty. Um, is it the moment where predation emerged, where parasitism emerged, all those kind of things? And so by looking at the text, I try and argue that no, that I don't think that that's actually in the text. What we do see is an accumulation of theology that starts particularly with the Reformation. Um, and it, it moves from... Um, you know, it, it's figures like Luther and Calvin um, and, and writers like John Milton in Paradise Lost, who really sort of sink this idea that everything was perfect. There was no death um, of any sort until Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Whereas if you look at the early writers of the church, you begin to see people like Augustine saying, well, of course, animals eat each other. You know, this is this is a right part of God's plan. He did he did think humans shouldn't die, um, but he he had no problem with animals eating each other. And it turns out that through much of uh, human history, that or uh, through Christian history and Christian thought about this, it's really not until the Reformation that you begin to see the majority of thinkers thinking that what Genesis says is the world was absolutely perfect. So I do, I do get into the text. There's a bit of Hebrew, there's a bit of, you know, lots of different fun, but um, basically argue that the, the text doesn't portray this perfect world um, where, where nothing is wrong and where there is no pain, but rather it's a much more complex picture with, with this sort of, um, with the world being a fruitful, good place, but not being a place of shalom yet, not being a place that's completed, not being a place that's meant to be static. Um, and then after that, I get more into the theology of, uh, there are three chapters, uh, the theology of God. So I have one chapter on what does God's love mean? Does, does God's love actually mean that God would never prevent suffering or never allow suffering to occur? Um, and I get into ideas of what the freedom of love entails and the idea that you can um, love, but that doesn't mean controlling the other. It actually means giving them significant freedom. And so as creatures pull out um their, their sort of options for life as they're going, they're going to have different choices, some of which uh, involve harm to other creatures, and they, and they have the freedom to choose that. So in, in a sense, it's an extension of that free will argument to the animal world and saying they have maybe not moral choice, but they have significant behavioral plasticity which allows them to choose lifestyles that bring harm to others. And God in love gives them that freedom. Um, and then I have two last chapters. One is on divine action, sort of how is God at work in the world? And um, again, I sort of survey a bunch of the options that are out there in sort of theological and philosophical circles, and then make my own argument around the ways that I think God is at work through making meaning, through luring creatures towards the good, um, through ideas of of um, uh, oh no now I'm now I'm forgetting I, I had them there a moment ago but <laughs> clearly it's been longer since I've since I've written this book um, so there there are four different ways that I think of God as as working in the world um, that occasionally involve you know up to downright miracles i'm i'm happy with that i'm not sort of a deist saying god god is never involved in the world mm -hmm. uh but trying to articulate how god is in the world in the long stretches of evolutionary history and then the last chapter deals with redemption uh, of animals so do do all dogs go to heaven um uh, do all bacteria go to heaven and and what might that mean and how do we put that together theologically with the claims of Christ and the claims that that Jesus came uh, to 
to reconcile all things, as, as Colossians say, all things on earth and, and in heaven. Um, mm -hmm. And so try to work out what, what animal salvation might look like. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Really good stuff. Okay, so as far as just general arguments that people have used, um, you know, to, to counteract the whole evolution is bad and, you know, doesn't make God evil kind of thing. Um, how have Christians respond? You mentioned a couple like, you know, free will and, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve did it. You know, that's that's our blame. And that's just it. Um, how have other people responded to the idea that God is not evil for allowing all of this animal and human suffering all of these millions of years? Yeah. So there, in, in terms of when it looks at animal suffering, there's a few different approaches that, that are, that are popular right now amongst scholars who work in this, in this field. So one of them would be to say, well, clearly there's a chronological problem if we're trying to blame Adam and Eve, because they come so late in the story, but there's another agent who has been around for a lot longer and has evil intent, and that would be Satan or, uh, you know, fallen angels in general. And so a few people, I think, I think C.S. Lewis is one of the people who sort of said, you know, I think, I think that might be a way to talk about evil in the world before, before humans were around. Um, and that's been picked up most prominently by Michael Lloyd, who's the president of Wycliffe College at Oxford. Uh, and he has has really been putting forward that um, Greg Boyd and um, Paul Griffiths would be other people who sort of say it doesn't it doesn't seem reasonable now that we know about the long history of the earth to to put the blame on uh, humans, but but we could put it on Satan. Um, I think that there are strengths to that. I think there are also significant weaknesses. Quite often in the biblical text, uh, God points out that this is God's world. <laughs> um, God points out the the sort of harshest bits of creation. When you read Psalm 104, you've got the the Leviathan, the sort of monster of of creation that that God formed to frolic in in the seas. Um, in Genesis one. Uh, God talks about making the beasts of the field, which are usually Hebrew euphemism for carnivorous beasts. In the divine dialogues in Job, God seems to point out with special pride things like snowstorms and hail and the behemoth and Leviathan, all these things as, as points of, of particular pride of divine craftsmanship. So if these were the fault of the devil, that would be a simple thing for God to just say, hey, I, I didn't I didn't intend for any of that to be there, um, but God doesn't. God God takes ownership for it all. Um, I think that uh, another another option is to simply say that the world is fallen, but we're not really sure how or why. So somebody like Nicola Hogarth Cregan, um, Celia Dean Drummond, Neil Messer, and increasingly Christopher Southgate go that way. So they say, you know, there's some sort of resistance that creation can bring itself to divine purposes. And um, they will they will hold uh, that although creation is good, there are lots of ways it's not good, and that that's somehow against God's will. And then there's um, me and a few others who would say, no, no, this is God's good world. And it happens to include suffering. It happens to include death. Um, and that places the, the uh, preponderance of our defense really on the ideas of hope, of salvation, of God making all things well, um, and of, of making sense of what seems like senseless suffering. Uh, and so there's there's a lot more weight saying, you know, some of these things look bad. Um, some of them are simply necessary to life. They're a package deal. So, you know, we think of pain as a really bad thing. But if we look at the lives of people who are born without pain, uh, they don't live good lives. They tend to live very short lives because they destroy their body bit by bit without without even realizing it. Um, the 
the disease that used to be known as leprosy, what's now called Hansen's disease, is a great example of this. It's a it's a it's an invasion of the um, pain nerves in the body, and as the pain nerves die, people start harming themselves. Not not intentionally, but they put their hand on the stove and they don't realize it. They cut themselves. They walk. Uh, on broken bones, and they just don't notice it because they don't have the warning signs of pain. And so um, if anybody in the New Testament actually had Hansen's disease when it talks about Jesus healing lepers, mm. um, and that word meant a lot of things in, in Greek. So uh, we don't think that most of them meant that, but some of them probably did. Then when Jesus healed them, what Jesus did was actually gave back their ability to feel pain. And that's the opposite of how we generally think about healing. So mm. part of my project is to really say uh, all, all things unpleasant are not bad. <laughs> all thing, things like suffering. Suffering wasn't something that was locked into the beginning of life. Life happened for billions of years without any capacity for creatures to suffer in unicellular organisms, et cetera. So it's only when you start to get evolutionary development um, in, in more complex ways where creatures are dealing with more complex problems of how do I move around? How do I, how do I anticipate the future and remember the past that you begin to get the possibility of suffering? And the reason it's there is because it's so protective. Um, so if something really hurts us, we remember to avoid that in future. And, you know, so what, what I could talk about physical pain being protective in the emotional realm, um, that's what emotions do socially, what basic pain nerves do physically, right? So somebody says something mean to you and it hurts. And that helps you learn how to navigate the social realm, right? So the, these these are things that we wouldn't want to live without, despite how difficult they can be. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how, how pain is actually seen in a good way in a lot of ways. So you, you mentioned the whole idea of a lot of Christians will say, hey, that, you know, Satan was, was the cause of all this evil and, and suffering in this world. And, and that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Um, so a, a really popular argument that I hear, at least online, is the idea that, you know, God could have chose a world where, at, you know, from the beginning of his, before this is even, all even started, he could have said, like, he, he made the world a completely different way where there wasn't certain types of pain or, or whatever, all that kind of stuff. So, so it also seems like just, you know, blaming it all on Satan doesn't really solve that problem because God still put Satan in a place where he, he would be able to do that. Um, do you, th what do you think about that? Is that a good way to think? I mean, that kind of is similar to how it's like, well, God put Adam and Eve in the same place to, or the, to be able the ability to do that, even though he knew they would sin. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think some of those some of those arguments end up in sort of philosophical quagmires that I, I find unhelpful. So somebody is like, well, I could imagine a world without pain, you know, and it's like, well, yeah. And there's good examples of, for example, human life without pain, but it's not actually a reality that we want. And so I think uh, some of those arguments that kind of say God could have created this other world where we didn't have these would also, yeah, they might not have the particular bads we're worried about, but they might lose really important goods, right? Um, so if I, if I lived entirely on my own, I would never suffer due to other people, but I would never have joys due to other people either. I'd never have intimacy. I'd never have love. I'd never have all these other things, right? So some of those proposals, I think, end up cutting off deep goods um, that that are are much better. Some of them are just unprovable. So I, I don't sure. I'm I'm not attracted to sort of philosophy for its own sake myself. Um, I know I know others are, uh, but when it comes to that, well, I can imagine. I'm going. I don't. 
I don't find that particularly enticing. I'd rather talk about this is the world we have. How do we understand it in light of the God who's revealed in the Bible? That's what I'm much more interested in. Um, can we get God off the hook is another really interesting question. That idea of, well, doesn't it all come down to God in the end? God made the God made the conditions that have allowed suffering to arise, whether through Satan or whether through people or whether through the behavioral plasticity of animals. And I think, absolutely, that's the whole question. The whole question that this hangs on is what kind of God do we have given that we can't get God off the hook? Um, mm. And I, I think it's really important to not take God off the hook. <laughs> and I think, mm. I think God has put, himself into this place where uh, we're allowed to question. And I think that happens in the incarnation. In Jesus, we don't only see God on the hook, we see God on the cross. Um, and I think that somebody like Holmes Rolston, who says the whole of creation is actually cruciform. When we look at the exchanges and the the way that life works on earth it's actually very reminiscent of the idea of jesus on the cross where he dies a painful death but it brings life to countless more and there is that kind of ecological exchange where nature isn't wasteful at all every creature that dies their body goes into a thousand other animals a million other animals their life is given in exchange for another one's life and, and so there, there's actually this, this deep formation of the gospel all through ecological realms. Now, if you're saying that exchange was set up by Satan, <laughs> that's lost, right? So you, you either need to sort of bite the bullet and say, yeah, it's painful, but I'm going to try and see God in and with it or reject it entirely and just say God, God, God couldn't bring the world God wanted to out of, out of this out of this world. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so something that I don't think you've mentioned a lot of here is the idea of like, you know, the, like the, the, the whole theodicy idea where like, you know, all this pain and suffering is supposed to make us better. And, and eventually, you know, you have heaven, which is, you know, much, much longer. And I guess almost like this is a preparation or some kind of test or I don't know, to make us better or whatever for, for for eternity for eternity uh what are your thoughts on on that idea and and additionally with animals as well since you know some philosophers argued that oh you know animals might have some type of morality or soul or anything like that what are your thoughts there yeah um again a, a number of really good questions in there so um I I think that the idea that this world is is sort of a, a test or a preparation for heaven, I'd, I'd probably say something along the lines of what this creation does is create the creatures who can inhabit heaven, right? I think that the whole the whole of creation is is productive of novelty and particularity, and what I mean by that is you know people are like, well, God could just create a giraffe. Maybe, but if you're looking at all the endless possibilities, you probably would never come up with a giraffe because a giraffe is a result of the evolutionary history that led to it. It's weird spine, the fact the number of vertebrae it has, which is the same number of vertebrae you and I have. You know, there are lots of things about a giraffe that you would never come to if you just tried to design one from scratch, right? Mm. There's, there's a lot of things. And so the, the giraffe is a gift of the sort of contingency and possibilities of evolution that have been hammered out over, over these hundreds of millions of years and, and indeed billions of years of, of evolution. And so I think, I think that it, it, is, it is creating these unique creatures um, from, from the draft to uh, the rabbit to each one of us, to you and me, um, who, who then are the people who take up residence in, in heaven. Um, and one of the one of the long questions has been, uh, you know, do animals have souls? Do animals have the capacity to go to heaven? And uh, in in one sense, the question of do they have souls was never really a question. The answer has always been yes in Christian thought. 
the main debate was actually over whether they had the type of souls that could survive death. And so um, I won't get into the weeds of it, but in sort of Aristotelian views, you had you had three different kinds of souls. Um, you had the the basic vegetative soul, which meant that you could grow, you could reproduce. So plants had it, anything that's living has it. Then you have the more animal soul, which means you have senses, you can, you can move around, you can um, uh, think to some extent, you can you can uh, again reproduce, but more importantly, you can walk around, you know, you can make decisions. Um, and then humans in particular were seen to have the rational soul. And the rational soul was long thought to be the only soul that could survive um, the death of the body because it didn't rely on having a body to survive the same way that the sensitive soul did because it was it was linked to the body entirely. Now, of course, at that point, they didn't know about how the brain or the mind worked or the reasons we would now think that even rationality is very physically embedded. Um, so I think given that new research on how physical the mind actually is, the idea that the rational soul is somehow vastly different from these other three is, I think, not, not very not very persuasive. So I'd rather say anything that has a body, anything that is living has as much chance as anything else of, of surviving death because the way we survive death is by resurrection. God recreates the body and, and, and thus it sort of opens the floodgates to, to non-human animals. And, and indeed all, all sorts of creatures, not just animals, but, uh, bacteria, archaea, protists, plants, um, being part of the resurrected life as well. Um, some people disagree with me on that and, and that's fine. This is largely speculative. And I think the purpose yeah. of discussing these is, is less to say I can prove the final answer and more again to ask about what is the character of God? And so, well, some people would say, well, you have to have these characteristics, you know, you have to be yay tall to enter heaven. I'm more likely to say something like the proper answer to what will God save is the answer to the question, what does God love? And mm -hmm. so if that, if the answer to what does God love involves bacteria, then I think bacteria will make part of part of the resurrected life, you know, mm -hmm. but the way that this ends up in the animal suffering debate is, are they do some sort of compensation? For when, for when they die. So when a seal pup is torn apart by orcas who are just playing with its body, have no intention of eating it, um, its life seems to be wasted. So does God plan to, um, to, to recompense it for its suffering? And I think, I think that yes, but I think so much more than that. <laughs> you know, I think if, if, if we could see the glories of heaven, um, the, the, the difference between the one who needs recompense for suffering and the one who lived a full, full long life, um, in comparison to the gift of eternal life, I think will be so small that the difference between them will be negligible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if we haven't hammered the point, I just really wanted to, to go deeper into the, the idea that like there can be a deer in, in the woods, say, 17 million years ago or something. I don't know if that actually fits with the evolutionary timeline, but say there's a deer in the woods 17 million years ago and it dies and nobody even knows about it, nobody even hears about it. It's just absolutely a terrible death. And it, you know, a lot of people have asked, okay, surely that's happened at least once in history. How could good ever come from that? Can you talk about your, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think that there are different ways we could talk about the goods in that situation. Now, I get nervous when people are like, I know how to bring out the cosmic way scales and I can show that it's better that this happened than that it didn't happen. Mm. I don't I don't want to claim that kind of thing. So I'm not trying to put up the way scales and say this was really a good idea after all. Um, because I think the death of uh an animal in severe pain um is 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 not is not great. It's not awesome. But having said that, what what happens? So the classic example brought up by William Rowe is of of a little fawn, you know, a baby deer who gets caught in a forest fire 
and then take several days to die um, because the burns were bad enough to disable it, but not bad enough to kill it for a certain amount of time till it dies of thirst, really. Yeah. Um, so if we look at that, we, we need to look at it in, in light of um, the, the forest fire itself. So forest fires we know are hugely beneficial to ecosystems. They are um, often necessary to renew resources in land and ground and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. actually our human tendency to say fire is bad, we're gonna stop all fires has actually led to a great deal of damage in mm -hmm. particularly North American forests where we've, we've been very effective at stopping it. Um, then you can also say, okay, we look at we can look at the life of that deer, and although the single life has died, there's going to be lots of other creatures that benefit from its death, right? So you're going to have decomposers in there, you're going to have scavengers, you're going to have all these other creatures whose own life depends on and is enriched by by the death of this deer. Um, and then you can also talk about more sort of speculative metaphysical things. You can talk about the way that that deer's life was of value, even if it was short. You can talk about the gift that it was to God. You could talk about the the ways that its um, its life were part of the fulfillment of its parents' lives. <laughs> you know, I mean, so there there's all there's all sorts of different ways that we could talk about the goods. Does that outweigh the the fact of its suffering? Um, you know, I I don't I don't think that that's a comparison we can actually make. Um, hmm. But is it good that that deer could have the capacity to feel pain? Again, I'm going to say yes, um, hmm. uh, because it was good for that deer itself in all of its life up to that point, um, and it. Uh, you know, and it, and it's part of a, of a larger story. Now, in addition to that, I'm also going to say that I think that there is eternal life waiting for that particular deer, um, and that and that you know, you had said when you set it up, you know, nobody saw it, nobody. Well, I'm going to say there's no creature that suffers without somebody <laughs> seeing it, and I think yeah. there's no creature that suffers alone. And this is where arguments about sort of God's co-suffering with creatures come in. Um, and yeah, that was one of my divine actions. God co-suffering with creatures. Now, now it's coming back to me. There you go. Um, the idea is often critiqued in the sense of, you know, if I go to the doctor with a broken arm, the last thing I want is for the doctor to break their own arm um, and co-suffer with me. You know, we want we want release from our suffering, <laughs> not for uh, God to necessarily suffer with us. Um, but again, I think what it does is it changes the kind of God we're talking about. If God kind of sits in heaven in perfect bliss and says, ah, I'm quite happy for, for all of you to suffer for my purposes, um, you end up with somebody kind of like Lord Farquaad from Shrek. I don't know if you remember when he, when he wants to send out the knights to rescue Princess Fiona because he doesn't want to go himself. He kind of says, some of you may die but that is a risk I am willing to take, you know? <laughs> and it's so easy for a theological systems to sound a bit like that. But if God shares in the suffering of creatures, then although God doesn't prevent it, you don't have a Lord Farquaad view. You have a view of mm. the one who feels every pain, who notices every suffering and who participates in it and takes responsibility again for the suffering that happens not not only in in co-suffering with creatures but particularly on the cross where i mm. think i think jesus shows us what god is most like hmm. yeah that's that's an interesting perspective yeah that that's uh, definitely worth diving into so you you did briefly talk about how you don't like to talk about like the the what ifs like god could have changed physics just a little bit, or he could have done this or, or that. Could you talk about why you're so hesitant? Is it purely because we don't know much about how that would work? And it's the big unknowns? Is, is that it? And why? 
I mean, clearly, I would assume, I would assume that like, you know, there's some aspects of your life where you would say like, hey, we don't know this, we don't know much about this, you know, like there's philosophical arguments where it's like, you know, we don't, um, you know, we don't have an explanation for this. And God, I mean, that's probably a terrible example, but I, I would hope you're getting the idea. Um, yeah. But you tell me what you think about all that. I mean, I, I don't like the what ifs. One, because some of them are immensely complex and we don't actually know what the world would look like. So there are people who spend time sort of saying, what if regular life happened in five dimensions instead of four? What if it happened in two dimensions? You know, <laughs> And then they kind of work out mathematically that actually three space time dimension or three space dimensions and one time dimension is actually makes a very stable universe and most other universes would collapse upon creation, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we could start with the very laws of physics. And that's what a lot of the fine tuning arguments do is kind of say, could we shift these basic numbers even a little bit? And it turns out if you did shift them even a little bit, um, then you wouldn't have the formation of stars, which would mean you wouldn't have the formation of heavy elements, which would mean you wouldn't have planets, which means you wouldn't have life as we know it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, could you make life some other way? We don't, we don't know. The only sort of example of that in the Christian tradition is the creation of angels, right? Who clearly, well, not clearly, but seem to not have bodies in a physical matter, but, but seem to be pure spirit. So if angels exist, then they're an example of God doing life a completely different way but clearly if if angels are real and demons are real that had its own challenges <laughs> and had its own possibilities for fallenness so it doesn't even mean like even if god made life radically different there seems to be some choice element that is that is critical to life and i just don't think we did avoid it so I, I just don't think they actually get people to where where they want to be, which is some sort of certainty around, you know, this is the best of all possible worlds. I'm not willing to say that either. I can say these are the goods, these are the harms, these are the advantages, these are the disadvantages. And can God be good given this mix of things we're in? I think so. To sort of say, you know, well, why didn't God take this other one away, right? So a classic example is volcanoes. Uh, volcanoes and earthquakes kill a lot of people. They can be really devastating. We can think of the 2005 Indian Ocean tsunami, et cetera, and say, why didn't God just make a world without, um, without these processes that are so harmful? And you sort of look around the solar system and you're like, oh, actually God did make a number of other planets that, that, that don't have plate tectonics. So you can look at Mars, you can look at, at Venus, um, mm -hmm. But they're completely lifeless. And part of that does have to do with their position from the sun, but part of it also has to do with the lack of plate tectonics. So it looks like in early Mars, there was um, liquid water on, on Mars, um, but the, the, the failure of, of having uh, no plate tectonics led to conditions that didn't allow that to stay. On Venus, where... Um, there are also no plate tectonics. The heat that is created by the radioactivity in, in the heart of the planet um, and our planet as well, in, on Earth, 90% of that heat gets used up by the plate tectonics, by that cold rock being pushed back down under and you know, volcanoes spewing magma uses up the heat that the Earth generates. On Venus, where that doesn't happen, the crust just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter until the whole planet goes molten every once in a while, uh, which mm. they call a resurfacing event. Um, and so it, it just doesn't lead to it just doesn't lead to circumstances that allow life to prosper. So actually, there's all these things that that the occasional earthquake does that make this planet livable. And if God changed that, the knock-on effects would mean that life would be impossible. So you sort of think, you know, a, a, a clever demon wouldn't cause plate tectonics and volcanoes. <laughs> it would stop them because that would be the surest way to eliminate life on Earth. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, there's the whole idea of like natural evil, natural disasters are 
evil in themselves. So, so it sounds like you're saying against intuition of what we might think that, yeah, there, there's actually a lot of good in those types of things and mm -hmm. they allow life. So that, mm -hmm. that is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. same, the same can be said of predation. So if you're looking at, you know, or like, why did God make wolves, you know, but where, where deer populations don't have wolves to keep down their numbers, like here in Scotland, where I, I currently am sitting, um, it's a complete ecological disaster. <laughs> they, they, they breed without any sort of limit. Um, and then they eat all the things that are available. And then they largely starve to death um, huh. because they, they can breed far faster than the ecological system can renew their food sources. Uh, and so deer are not happier because of the lack of wolves. They're actually much worse off and go through a lot more suffering from things like starvation than the occasional one would if it's hunted by a pack of wolves. So actually the government spends a lot of money to cull wild deer herds here um, because it's more humane. And so there's been a long uh, argument that we should reintroduce wolves here precisely because they're so good. And there's a great video about the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone Park and how it has this huge knock-on effect with just a few wolves being introduced um, can't remember when it was, but a few years ago now. And it, it's just a really interesting thing to say, you know, we tend to focus on the individual harm without this sort of wider story. And that's particularly why the what ifs are not very helpful debates, because we're, mm. we're, we're often ignorant of, of the wider context that can set that particular harm in balance. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, I remember having a debate with a student once where they're like, but, but, you know, why does it have to hurt so bad? You know, and you're like, well, actually, the moment it starts hurting your body's regular defenses, you go into shock, you go, you know, you stop, you stop hurting as bad as you might, once it's once it's not in in place anymore. Um, once it's not beneficial to grab your attention and they're like, yeah, but shouldn't, shouldn't there be some intermediate state between like dying, which is one way to release and, and, and just being in pain. Shouldn't, shouldn't like, wouldn't a good God create something that was in between those stages. So you didn't have to die to get out of pain. And I said, do you mean like unconsciousness, like fainting? Hmm. <laughs> and suddenly they were like, Oh, right. All oh, right. That actually already exists. You know, pain <laughs> is bad enough. You don't necessarily die. You fall unconscious. Right. Huh, and so, wow. so there actually are all these ways that our bodies are fine tuned to avoid unhelpful pain or pain when it, when it really is excessive. Now, ironically, what we've done through being so good at, at helping people live through things that would have killed them in the past is we create a much longer experience of pain for people. You know, people now suffer for months and years because we can prolong their lives with things like cancer and that sort of thing. Whereas in the past, probably would have been a very quick death. Now, I'm not saying I'm not for medicine. I'm a big, big fan of, of modern medicine. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's, it's an interesting trade-off uh, that we've made through our medical expertise of, again, kind of thinking our main job is to get rid of pain, um, which led to things like the opioid crisis, right? If, if it were as simple as just get rid of pain, we wouldn't be having a problem, but it's much more complex than that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So you've briefly mentioned the idea of love. Could you give your, your, big, your main argument, why is love such a big deal in this question? How does it answer so many uh, problems? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we we again, we sort of generally think that if, if God loves us, then everything will be perfect. And there'd be no pain, there'd be no suffering. And, and for a number of reasons, I just don't think that's true. I think that I think that love is something that loves through pain through suffering. And and, and you can see that with any good parent, right? They don't protect their children from all harms. Excessive harms, sure. You know, uh, harms that come about through um, ignorance that are going to have an outsized effect. Yeah, you stop your, you stop your child from running in traffic. Uh, but you don't stop them 
from <laughs> trying to run and finding that they stumble. You don't stop them from riding a bike. You don't, you know, so we, we can put things in place, but if a parent actually worked to prevent every harm, they would prevent their child from having life. And so, you know, um, the same way that a good parent is like, I know you'd like ice cream for supper, but I'm going to give you broccoli. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that there are real places where God allows, um, doesn't allow us to have what we want in order to give us uh, what we need. Now, when, when human sin comes into the picture, I think that there's a lot of just senseless suffering. So I don't want to say like, oh, we can use that to justify a war, or we can use that to justify mm. abuse. Not at all. I think that there's a lot in the human world that happens just because um, people are evil and are sinful and make terrible decisions. Uh, but when it comes to the animal world, I think that um, it, it's quite a different picture. I don't think that there's um, moral moral bankruptcy in the non-human world. And so where what we see is God giving creatures the gift of being, the the gift of of um, being able to be creative alongside of God in choosing how they're going to live. Uh, and that includes creating lifestyles of parasitism, of, of predation, um, and so on, or, or, you know, plants creating toxins. Um, and so I think all of that happens within the boundaries of, of God's love as God lets creatures be what they will be without micromanaging, without ensuring that they do something that that might you know overall make a nicer pattern but wouldn't allow the uniqueness of creatures to to make choices along the way mm. yeah yeah good stuff thank you okay so last question for you there's you know we've discussed a number of different views here what other less commonly mentioned views have they been proposed for the you know responses to animals and human suffering yeah, so we haven't we haven't really discussed the idea of privation very much. So this is one that's usually uh, talked about in in light of Augustine and particularly Thomas Aquinas. And so the idea is that that um, any evil that we see is really a failure to be good. So it's more like you know, light is something. It's it's a substance. You have photons. Darkness isn't anything. It's simply the lack of light. And so what you see when you see evils in the world is, is just a conflict of goods or the bad timing of goods or, you know, so um, even when it comes to sin, sin is not a positive force in the world. It's the failure to be good. So you have something like uh, sexual desire is good. Sexual desire in the wrong way becomes an evil. Um, and so it's the wrong timing, it's the wrong person, it's the wrong context that makes sexual desire into something evil. And so, um, you know, a, a combination of um, uh, very good chilies and my very good tongue results in a lot of suffering, but neither one of those things are evil in themselves. It's simply the mixture uh, that, that, is, that is bad for my, my existence, whereas the chili in its own right is a good thing, et cetera, et cetera. So some people would apply that to the animal world. And I think that that's actually quite a, quite a nice way to do it. It's a different way of sort of saying um, that, God, that God creates all good things and, and some things are, are less good than they could be, um, but they're not, they're not necessarily evil. It's just a, a combination of, of goods in the wrong combination that creates this sort of struggle. So again, plate tectonics, good thing. Uh, people living on the earth, good thing. Uh, people living right under a volcano that's going to explode in the next day, not a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. you know. And so it, it sort of, again, it's not saying God created evil things. It's, it's saying God created good things, but their combination causes conflict. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any other views, any other thoughts? Um, I'm, I'm sure that I'm missing some. Do you have any in mind? <laughs> oh, um, well, there is one, the, 
I mean, okay, we, we kind of discussed animals have souls. Um, there's is an interesting one where it's like they animals they you know I I guess that I don't know I don't know if you think there's actually any moral component to animals having um, like you know can they make wrong choices I I don't know I mm -hmm. I haven't heard many yeah, people yeah. would say that um, but you know maybe this is just like what they can see now and and then later in heaven or something like that they they're going to have, you know, the ability to, to make more right and wrong choices, or I don't know what you think of that. Um, any, any thoughts? Does that, no. does that spur anything? No. So there's, there's a few people who would say that the same sort of free will choice that humans, you know, that there's bad suffering because people just do wrong things in a sinful yeah. way can be usefully extended to animals. So David Clough would be one up at the University of Aberdeen, Celia Dean Drummond down in Oxford would also say that. Um, and they look at animal behavior studies and, and various other ways and try and say, you know, as far as we can tell in creatures like chimpanzees, there seems to be something like disgust, moral disgust. And there seems to be like a sense of fairness and a sense of the violation of fairness in, in ways that if we saw in a two-year-old, we would say, oh yeah, they have a sense of right and wrong. And, and so why wouldn't we also ascribe that? And that opens up the possibility of their having sin. Um, and so part of the evolutionary evil question might be able to ans be answered by saying that they they sin in these kind of ways. Uh, in terms of sort of creatures saying in heaven, um, oh, it's actually good that that, that, that happened to me. Um, so that's playing on, uh, on the type of argument that Marilyn McCord Adams makes in her uh, book, Christ and Horrors, where she sort of says, you know, I said earlier, the way scales um, are probably a fruitless venture. And she would say the same. She would say the the only important thing is, does the person who suffers, she's talking about human pain, does the person who suffer uh, come to accept and even celebrate in what they experienced? Can God so reframe the context of their suffering that in the end they are okay with it, that that's the only scale that matters. Um, and so I've played with that idea a little bit for, for animals that sort of, you know, the extinction of the dinosaurs was clearly a tragedy for all creatures living at that time, but their extinction largely made room for mammals to develop, develop and evolve. And one bit of mammals turned into humans and some humans ended up being people like Bach and Mozart, who've created just masterpieces of, of creative endeavor, um, that if we trace it backwards, we could go all the way back to, to, to the dinosaur that died. So if in heaven, it can see that its demise, <laughs> you know, and this would clearly involve it having uh, more intelligence than it than we think that they probably had. But if, if they could somehow be made to see that their their death led through various indirect ways to the music of Mozart and Bach, would they look at that and be like, yeah, okay, fair, fair choice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that because I see how much it contributed to the, to the, to the growing good of the world. Um, and I think, I think that's a, that's a possibility. I think that God, God can sort of draw those links across time in ways that the, the animal who died is in some ways glorified. Their life is glorified by what it meant in, in the long run. Um, mm -hmm. And that they can be receptive, rec receptors of that sort of glory. And, um, you know, I think, I think um, uh, John Schneider has, has played a little bit with, with concepts of, of that um, as has, um, oh no, I'm forgetting the name of it now. Um, a, a colleague, another colleague in the States. I'm really sorry. Um, I've, I've forgotten his name. Uh, Trent Dougherty. That's what it is. Trent. Oh, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew the moment, the moment I confessed that I couldn't remember it, it was going to come to mind. So Trent, Trent Dougherty has, has sort of played with the idea of saint making as well for animals in, yeah. in the heavenly kingdom. Yeah. 
yeah that that's a very popular one um from from what i've heard uh, so uh, another another idea is uh, i guess maybe just making sure that the the question is framed right because i guess when you talk about like oh millions of years of animal suffering um you know it it gives you the impression i guess that like it's just on and on and on of just all suffering but there's it's also worth mentioning that there's a lot of good that comes um in all of that like you know the the deer that you know even the worst situations where the deer that you know is in the forest or whatever and and burns to death and all that kind of stuff that they, they still had a i would assume like a great life or you know a good life or you know you can make that argument that there was a lot of good that even came before that so it's not like it was just continuous suffering all the time even though there are some situations where that does happen um but um yeah no that that's um that's very helpful thank you for that so, yeah, I, I do want people to get more familiar with your work, though, so they can have resources to go to and if they want to. Uh, can you tell people more about the other stuff you've written on and maybe what you're working on now? Yeah. Um, so if you're looking for just sort of short form articles, really, the two places I would look are the Christian Century. Um, I've got a couple articles on there in their archives um, and on BioLogos the the website that was started by Francis Collins. And um, both of those would be just sort of short, you know, five, 10 minute reads. Um, if you're, the, the biggest thing with me is being able to spell my last name. So Soloretter is a unique name. Uh, my family are the only family in the world with it. So if you can search Bethany Soloretter and hopefully you'll have my name in the show notes, people can find my writings quite easily. Um, but I'd, I'd look to those two places first. If you're looking for a little bit of a longer one, but still really an introduction, I've written a little book called Why Is There Suffering? Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. And, and what this is, is it's the first theological choose your own adventure book. Uh, so rather than me just saying, this is what you should believe and this is why you should believe it and this is what I think and, and why I think it's persuasive, what I try and do is I put the reader in the place of the theologian. So uh, you begin with a question, what is God like? And then if you think God is loving and powerful, then you're going to turn to sort of page eight. If you think God um, exists, but doesn't really care about us, then you turn to page 12. If you think God doesn't exist, then you turn to page 23, you know, that sort of thing. And so you're making theological decisions along the way, building your own view. And then you can go back and restart and think, okay, what if I want to investigate somebody else's view? How, how might somebody else think through this, make different decisions? And it just sort of lays out the landscape of, of, of how people have thought about this question in what I hope is a really inaccessible, a really, a really accessible way, um, uh, a way that, that, that doesn't uh, use a lot of big words. It doesn't use a lot of grim examples. There's not a lot of torture stories, et cetera, that often pervade this sort of literature. Um, and then if you want the bigger book, then it's God, Evolution, and Animal Suffering. And that was that, that is uh, far longer. It's far more sort of academic in its tone and its approach. Um, but it's where the sort of biggest amount of my work is now. Um, at the moment, uh, a book that I'm working on with a few colleagues is is going to be sort of a, a conversation between us um, on this question. So we've got uh, Christopher Southgate, Neil Messer, uh, Michael Lloyd, who I discussed before in, in relation to the satanic thing, myself, all sort of presenting our views and having a response from Paul Fittes, who is a professor of uh, systematic and historical theology at Oxford. And, um, and so he, we're, we're writing chapters, he's responding to them, and then we will respond to him and to each other. And yeah. so sort of you can see what happens if, if scholars are put in a room together, allowed to, <laughs> allowed to discuss over a, a, a couple of meetings. Um, you know, how we differ and how we, why we differ. And one of the really interesting things that came out of that was just how much our theological views were sort of informed by our gut feeling. You know, hmm. 
I grew up uh, around people who were farmers in a family where hunting was common. And so this sort of exchange of death for life um, just seemed like something that's a given in life. And so I've never tried to fight against it theologically, whereas some of the other people um, uh, didn't didn't grow up in those kind of environments. And again, just sort of had this gut feeling that like, it's wrong. It's wrong that we should eat each other, <laughs> you know, and and work out their their theology in in that way. Um, you know, it's wrong that people that we love die. Um, whereas I would more say it's very painful that that people that we love die, and and how do we how yeah. do we then respond to that? So um, so that that's one thing I'm working on. The other thing I'm working on uh, is on climate change and sort of what do we do if we can't stop it. So quite a few eco-theologians have been working on ideas of sort of how can we stop this? How can we have a more just relationship with the world? I think those things are really good. But I also want to do some work saying, um, and what if we fail? Um, how do we how do we encounter, how do we face the realities that will be coming out um, if we do fail? Hmm. So, yeah. you know, cheerful stuff, you know, things, things that really bring a grin and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, someone's got to answer those questions. Otherwise we're, we're left in, in the dark with, by ourselves. Hmm. And that's not, that's even much worse place to be, but no, thank you so much for coming on here. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm, I've really appreciated just, you know, getting my questions answered and, and I'm sure a lot of people else will, will also be asking those same questions. So um, I think this is going to be real helpful for a lot of people. But once again, thank you so much for coming on. And, and I, I really appreciate it. Did you have any last thoughts or anything else you want to say? Oh, I'm just very grateful for the invitation. And thank you for your questions. And I've, I've really enjoyed this. And I, you know, awesome. I just hope that people will will keep asking questions and will keep uh, engaging with these topics, because I think that awesome. they're really important. Thank you. Yes. yes, I'm with you there. All right. Thank you so much. And, and I hope you have a good rest of your day.